Okay, you're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Shanti Collins. I guess I shouldn't say week, because I'm not really weekly anymore, but I try my hardest. Hard habit to break. It is. Um, now, Sean, in the best sense of the word, you, uh, for myself, um, there's a few people I think of as like generational comics, journalism, contemporaries, and I would say like you and Joe McAuliffe and some other folks. Like I feel like we all kind of came up. You were probably earlier than me because you worked for Wizard. Yeah, although I worked for Wizard, you know, not in the glory days of Wizard. You know, I worked for Wizard. Not for... in the massive cocaine in the office. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, when it was just uh, running amok with Todd McFarlane strippers with Mark Silvestri. You know, <laughs> um, uh, I, I worked for Wizard in from 2004 to 2007. So it was okay. basically like they collapsed completely about six months after they got rid of me. Coincidence? Who am I to say? But, um, you know, so, but before, I mean, I was writing, I started writing about comics regularly in 2001, and, uh, you know, started writing for the Comics Journal probably in 2002 or three. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. What was some of the early stuff you were covering? Well, I, when I first got started, I was working for the Abercrombie and Fitch Quarterly, which awesome. is a story I love to tell, which is their... You know, one-third of it was the actual catalog of their clothes. One-third of it was the uh, sort of softcore pornography pictorial by the photographer Bruce Weber of, you know, naked uh, young men and women near Abercrombie and Fitch clothes. Uh, and then another third of it, yeah, another third of it was magazine content, um, you know, where they basically just gave a handful of people, myself included, uh, who operate out of New York, Whereas um, Abercrombie and Fitch itself operated out of Columbus, Ohio, which happens to be where we are now, um, carte blanche to do whatever we wanted. So, uh, you know, essays, interviews, humor pieces. So I interviewed tons and tons of different kinds of people, Clive Barker, from Clive Barker to Betty Page to Fisher Spooner, because um, it was 2001. Uh, <laughs> you don't get much more <laughs> no, than really, Fisher Spooner. You really don't. Um, but then that's my boss at the time, uh, an editor named Sava Sabatsidis, uh was into comics, so I had kind of fallen away. I read some in high school, didn't really keep up much in college, except for Chris Ware and Sin City, I guess, at the time, and Savage Dragon, which is a pretty random assortment. Uh, Sin City and Savage Dragon, kind of. Yeah, sure. Um, and then, so, you know, seeing things around on my boss's desk, I started going to Jim Hanley's Universe, which was convenient to the train station that I was taking and just going in and spending Abercrombie's money basically uh, and expensing it and buying I bought Non Number 5 there the Jordan Crane anthology I got Diary of a Teenage Girl so that's how I really started interviewing comics people I think the very first interview I did professionally was Todd McFarlane um, but that was because he was working with Barker and I wanted to get to Clive Barker so I had to go through Todd to get to Clive the sacrifices we make I know are, uh... yep um, but then from there, uh, Frank Miller, Will Eisner, Phoebe Gleckner, Craig Thompson, um, Brian Bendis, Paul Pope. Um, I didn't do it, but we had Art Spiegelman in the magazine. Um, so it was a pretty... Uh, Mark Miller, I didn't do that one either. Um, but so it was a wide-ranging, like, superhero people, old-school people, genuinely alternative people. Um and I just kind of stuck with it from there, you know. And I was posting in the Comics Journal message board and blogging. And this was when Dirk Deppie took over the magazine. So he brought a lot of bloggers on board. Yeah. Joe McCulloch was one of them, Tim O'Neill, uh, myself, a lot of other people. 
Now I want to talk about Phoebe Glechner especially mm-hmm. because so that was an early thing for you coming back into comics. Yeah. Coming back to the fold. Because I know uh, following you for the last 11 years or so is Phoebe's really one of your paramount influences as mm-hmm. far as like this is what you want to see. This is what you've really enjoyed. Um, and you have the 33 graphic novels everyone should read. Or 33 greatest graphic novels greatest of graphic all time. Of yes. all time. Yep. Yeah. Until 2016. Right. Um, and number one to, sorry, of ruining it, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Sean, is uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Right. And so I'm figuring with that, it, that book really had a profound effect on you. It did, yeah. You know, with regards to the list, um, which I did for Thrillist, the website Thrillist, um, in the intro I say it's really kind of a fool's errand to let any one person set a canon um, or say what the greatest is for a field as broad as comics. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it's obviously, I, I made a decision early on with the, the feature to, for it to be fairly idiosyncratic about my taste, you know, like I'm not going to say, the, you know, the greatest comic of all time is Crazy Cat, um, you know, yeah. because you can, it's a kind of, they're different exercises. You could come up with like, these are canonically the most important comics, um, you know, but when you, well, I feel like when you start using the adjective greatest, you then kind of start having to talk about what moves you personally. Yeah. Um, so The Diary of a Teenage Girl is the book for me because I think more than any other single comic, um, it's the one I think about the most. It's the one that I use kind of as a, a, a North Star creatively, mm-hmm. uh, both in my own fiction writing and then just critically uh, thinking about what I value in art. Um, it's just, uh, you know, I'm stealing this phrase, I think, from Tom Spurgeon, our humble host here at Comic, Cartoon Crossroads we Columbus. Where we are yes, we're done here. Yes, um, but I, I think he referred to it as a tear down the sky effort, and yeah. maybe just in an email that he sent to me, um, and that's really what it is. You know, she laid it all on the line. I think um, the hybrid format was really daring and and successful. Very successful because there are other hybrids, many others that tried right. doing that same text journal mixed with comics that just right just, I just want to read the comics because you know the, the the hybrid format allowed her to kind of portray the same events but using the different mind states that the character was in at the time versus she herself looking back on this sort of thinly fictionalized version of herself um, you know her viewpoint of the event so like the way I've always kind of seen it is obviously excuse me the diary portion it's pretty much verbatim from her own diaries. There are some differences. Um, but that's very much the Minnie Getz character's take of on what's happening. Um, then there are drawings that Minnie makes, um, you know, that are taken from Phoebe's work when she was that age. Then there are sort of standalone illustrations that kind of give like a storybook feel to it mm-hmm. um, that have a little bit of a distance to it, but it's still kind of getting the emotional feel th- and then the comics, I think, are Phoebe the author looking back at Minnie the character and giving a sort of more objective viewpoint of what this was actually like. So it's less, the comic portions are less caught up in the moment of this 
you know, whatever, for better or for worse, were the 15-year-old's yeah. emotions and sort of give a more dispassionate look back both at her and at the adults who were victimizing her um, and the friends who were victims and victimizers both at the same time. Uh, so the, the complexity of that really... You can't sum that up by saying, oh, well, it's comics and it's illustration and it's prose. Yeah. Like, it doesn't, that's, yes, it is, but there's much more to it than that. There's another aspect to it that's when you create, when you read a book, you imagine in your head the situation, but when you go through that situation, you've imagined it, and then you get to the comic version of it, and there's like kind of how that juxtaposed versus your own expectations and what you've placed in that situation, what Phoebe sees in yeah. that situation, and can kind of less normalizes it. Right, right. The opposite. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that people stumble over, I, I don't know, maybe that's over, overdoing it, but it's certainly a question that's come up a lot in interviews with her and in writing about her work because she doesn't play ball with it, which yeah. is, did this happen? Is this real? You know, is this autobiographical? You know, and obviously, yes, I mean, it did happen, um, but she's hesitant to say so the point she's trying to make is that this person that she was when she was a teenager might as well be a separate person from who she is now, but this continuity. And, you know, her version of events is different from the version of events that her mother or the Monroe character, who was a real person, might, yeah. you know, what they would say. Um, you know, so creating a mini instead of saying this is Phoebe, doing all these different things, is her way of addressing how difficult it is to access, like, this idea of the the truth about yeah. what happened. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, it's it's voyeuristic to, like, in a way of wanting to know, is this real? Mm -hmm. Because kind of the point of the story is, whether or not it's real, this happens. Right. And there are many, many, many more young women who have similar, worse, possible stories. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the strong factors of this is in every person's story in a way. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a universality to this to the book that belies the the specificity of the personal situation, the specificity of the setting and the period. I mean, all that stuff is very distinctive. The fact that it's her mom's boyfriend, the fact that her, you know, her father and her past stepfather also have these weird roles in her life. San Francisco, the 70s, Rocky Horror, drugs, you know, uh, Aileen Kaminsky, all this kind of stuff. Um, Janis Joplin, David Bowie, Iggy Pop, yeah. you know. But it go it, yeah, it it, 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 it's not, that stuff adds to the story and enriches the story. But, you know, I think you can, you see from the people who sort of freak out over this book that it doesn't, you don't need to be so rooted yeah. in her specific experience in this sort of voyeuristic way um, to get a lot out of it because the the emotions and the circumstances translate beyond, yeah. you know, her specific story. So um, through the process of working on the Abercrombie and Finch uh, catalog mm -hmm. magazine, um, you find yourself getting more into alternative, independent, small press. Yeah. Um, I can't remember, was it after that they went to Wizard? Before that? It was after that that I went yeah. to Wizard, yeah. yeah. Um, were you 
when you were at Wizard, were you trying to cover more of that kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, and we did. You know, I mean, I, I really don't read very many superhero titles anymore. But, I mean, I was reading them for a long time. Um, and so, you know, I didn't mind writing about that stuff. Uh, but for sure. And there was sort of like a little bit of a quorum that forms when I was there um, of people who were interested in alternative comics and independent comics. And we, we, were, we were able to get the stuff into the magazine, you know, there was a section called uh, Secret Stash that was, like, two pages every month that had, like, it would be a big feature on, you know, a specific book, um, and then there would be a sidebar where we could talk about other stuff. And then there was also, like, a, just, it was called Bookshelf that was, like, graded reviews of, of graphic novels and collections, and we got stuff in there, too. Um, because the thing, Wizard has a bad reputation that in many ways it deserves, um, but certainly while I was there, the bad people, and I, I don't mind saying that they're bad people, they were bad people, uh, <laughs> were, were concentrated in the, on the business end, yeah. uh, which was we called upstairs because it was a two-story building and they all worked upstairs. And downstairs was where editorial and design and research worked. And everybody there um, genuinely did love comics. Um, and didn't see it as a stepping stone to some other thing. Yeah. Um, and even if I didn't, even if our tastes were different, um, these people cared. They cared about the creators. They cared about the history. Um, it wasn't as sort of fanish as even what you get today with people talking about like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, um, <laughs> it, it was you know. So th- there were so even sort of mutual respect. Right. Right. So people who are higher up on the editorial food chain who might not necessarily have been into this stuff, like, recognized the enthusiasm that we had, you know, younger staff members, and recognized the value of this work and getting it in the magazine, you know. So it was important to them to maintain relationships with Fantagraphics, Drawn and Quarterly, Top Shelf, Ad House at the time, (laughs) Picture Box, like, you know, all the the publishers of the day, Mm -hmm. um, we were constantly reaching out and, and, and getting involved and getting that stuff in there, you know. I mean, I had Kramer Zerg at five in Wizard, so as far as I'm concerned, I did all right. <laughs> That's you your know? mic drop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and for folks that don't know, because Wizard is in some ways such a, like, so many people, they even listen now to the show. That's ancient history. In right. Yeah, so, all that exists now is this sort of fly-by-night convention company that has the name, but like, I don't think any of the same personnel and... Is it still owned um, by the same guy, or did he? No, he. No, he he, he 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 cashed out. He may have Garib Sheamus is the yeah. name of the guy. Um, he also bought a fighting league, which he also ran into the ground. Um, it was really pretty catastrophic. Uh, I didn't know about the. Oh movie. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was just it was almost like Marvel in the nineties. They overexpanded. Yeah. You know, people with as with Marvel in the nineties, people were like, oh, it, it fell apart because it sucked, and it's like, well, sucking didn't help, but. Marvel fell apart in the 90s because Ron Perlman bought, you know, trading because, card companies and all cards and stuff. And they that tried he, to start their own distributor company right. that wasn't ready to distribute them. Right, and I think Wizard was the same deal. They yeah. overexpanded with conventions, and Garib took all his money and put it into this fighting league that was a disaster. Um, I love it. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really amazing to... I mean, it sucked because yeah. I lost my job. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, you know, it was it was astonishing to watch it unfold in, in real time. Was writing always a passion? Is this like, this is, you're in university, I want to write, this is going to be it? Um, 
No, uh, not really. I, I did a lot of writing in school. Um, I guess most people do. I was a film studies major, though, and I guess that's an important distinction to make um, because I, I went to Yale and the film studies major at the time was relatively new. This was from 96 to 2000 is when I went. Um, and kind of frowned upon. So it was film studies rather than film because the, the, the sort of snobby line that the film professors got was like, Yale is not a trade school. You know, they didn't want to show people practically how to make films. They wanted to... Yeah. It was, crit- it was criticism in theory is really what you learned. Um, there was some hands-on stuff, but not a ton. And, uh, you know, at the, I mean, if, and if I didn't really have it bad compared to friends of mine who were into comics at the time and wanted to pursue that, but had to take, you know, had to be an art major. And the art faculty at Yale um, teaches both graduate and undergraduate students, which in a way is great, but they hate it. The professors hate it. Yeah. They would much rather be talking to the grad students, obviously. They're more advanced and... Um, so the last thing any of them wanted to hear was like, I had a college roommate, um, who was kind of the person who was subscribing to the comics journal, introduced me to the Acme Novelty Library, all that kind of stuff, um, and kept me involved even when I was just kind of at a distance. Um, the last thing they want to hear from this kid is like, I want to draw comics. The comics? You know, the the difference between then and now it's yeah. just, it's astonishing. It really well, is. Now they publish most of Wagner Brunetti's Yeah, yeah, and, it's wild. Yeah. And, that, and that was, you know, that wasn't that, many, that wasn't that long from from when I went to school there, but the change was just so dramatic. Yeah, but, it was um, like 2006, I think yeah. this book came out. So, you know, I, when I graduated, I wanted to get into film, so I worked as a production assistant on a bunch of indie things in New York, and the biggest thing that I worked on was a show called Big Apple, which was... Um, what David Milch did in between NYPD Blue and Deadwood, it only lasted for like six episodes and I was, I was never on set. I was just a, in the production office. And then I kind of, I bumped into, I mean, it was really coincidental. I bumped into an old friend who went to both my high school and Yale a couple of years ahead of me. And he was like, you still write? Cause I was in a sketch comedy group also and I did <laughs> sketch comedy writing in school and he was in the group for a while. We had a little bit of overlap and he was like, I'm working at this place. You know, he gave me his Abercrombie and Fitch card, and he's like, if you're interested in writing, drop me a line. So I kind of fell back asswards into all of it. And um, and just as time went on, developed more and more of a kind of fixation yeah. on writing. Because yeah. one of the things I always admire about you is your ability to keep writing, because you don't slow down and, <laughs> and and i guess at this point it's out of necessity because mm-hmm. that's that's your livelihood you're a writer you're yeah freelance. but um for me it's very difficult to sit down and write and be able to do so much mm-hmm. and have that productivity did you build up to that or have you always been like yeah no f- for sure for sure like uh you know, I can I can cite things in the past that where you had to develop discipline. Like my, my first year in college, I was part of a program called Directed Studies, which was their way of saying the Western canon without saying the Western canon. Um, so I had to write a paper every week um, for my entire freshman year. Um, and because I'd never been to college before, I didn't realize that that was, like, outrageous, you know. Yeah. But by the time the end of my sophomore year rolled around, I was like, what the fuck was I thinking? So I did a lot of writing then, and, you know, when I started blogging, 
in the early 2000s, uh, there came a time when I was started writing about comics again very seriously you know I fell in and out of it because when I was at Wizard I wasn't allowed to do write about comics I kind of switched to horror film um, and when I got back into writing about comics online I did three reviews a week every week for I think two years um, and so that helped but the thing but I'll tell you this I always was one of these people who liked having written I didn't really enjoy <laughs> writing and I could do it, and I could do it pretty, yeah. you know, with a, in a pretty disciplined way. But two things really changed that. One was starting to write about television regularly, because there are times when you don't get a copy in advance from the network, and your publication wants the review up as soon as possible, so you're watching a show from 9 to 10. 10 o'clock, it's over. By 11 o'clock, you have to submit a 1,000-word review. Um, you know, and there was a... Especially there was a period where I was reviewing... Uh, Game of Thrones for Rolling Stone and Mad Men for Wired, you know, and they overlapped for weeks every spring. Um, so I was watching Game of Thrones, writing about Game of Thrones until 11, watching Mad Men from 11 to 12 that I had DVR'd, and submitting, and then writing about Mad Men from 12 to 1 and submitting that to Wired, which was on West Coast time. Um, so when you do that, you develop such a you can't get writer's block. You have to sprint. Yeah, so you just start writing one idea, and then once you've written one sentence, a paragraph sort of forms around that, and once you've written a paragraph, a few more form around that, and then you have it. And then as I... I went full-time freelance th- three years ago when I got laid off from my third job uh, by the time I was 33. And um, it was only after that I realized, not even that long ago, probably sometime in the middle of 2015, I realized, like, I actually enjoy writing now. Yeah. It's not just finishing things and being done. Like, I actually enjoy the sort of physical and mental process combined that writing is. Like, just thinking about things, figuring out how to say shit. Um, I just enjoy it. Being in touch with your emotions. Yes. Yes. And I have to be. And maybe that's something with me, because I'm pretty blocked. You're very reserved. Canadian. <laughs> That's my excuse for everything this week. Is oh, like I'm Canadian. <laughs> Deal with it. Uh, just so folks know, we're recording this interview at um, the second year, the weekend CXC, the Cartoon Crossroads Columbus. Mm-hmm. I get it right. Uh, and so, in the process, uh, Tom Spurgeon, the festival director, is that his job yep. title? Uh, has given up two study rooms in this library to myself and Gil Roth that does um, virtual memories virtual memories yes Uh, we each have a a little room and it's this white cubicle that uh, Sean you likened to a scene from the master yeah I feel like uh, we're going to do a little informal processing there we go so at the end of this uh, if you don't hear from Sean again for a long time it's uh, not my fault yeah I'm in the time hole he made those choices himself that's right that's right (laughs) um so I'm just thinking about kind of your involvement with comics and the constant review, 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 if you're doing three reviews a week. That was for Robot 6? That was just for my own oh. personal blog. Yeah, I was doing Robot 6, too. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, so that was that, too. And was still doing reviews for the journal. And, and I'm wondering when there was a change with that, where you kind of stepped back and what that was. Um... I guess there are a couple things. 
one is just that TV writing pays better. And, um, you know, particularly when first when my daughter was born and then um, when I went full time freelancing, like I just kind of had to go where the money was. And then um, TV also got really good. Um, so, you know, that the, that helped. I mean, that's why I started writing about television. Um, that was weird, too. Like, I think Wizard started expanding its coverage to be sort of geek culture, which at the time was actually fairly forward-thinking. There were people at the magazine, even, who were like, why are we doing this? Well, it's like... Butter now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, the, we started doing stuff about Lost and Battlestar Galactica, which were the big nerd shows at the time, which also happened to be good. And so I would write about them for the magazine, and you'd all of a sudden get a lot more feedback than when you were writing about a mini-comic that 200 people wrote uh, had read, you know. Yeah. Um, and that helped, carried over to when I started writing about those shows for my own personal blog, located at shantycollins.com. Um <laughs> You know, so I and I realized I enjoyed it, and so I started doing that when I was catching up with canonical shows that I had missed. Um, so I did a rewatch of I had never seen The Wire, I had never seen Deadwood, I had never seen Breaking Bad or Mad Men, and went through all of them and wrote about them. I started writing about Boardwalk Empire also, and uh, an editor friend of mine at Rolling Stone, you know, I was just kind of fetching, and I was like, I mean, it would be nice to get paid for all this writing I'm doing anyway. And at the time, Rolling Stone, like most publications, was staffing up on its TV coverage, and they yeah. needed someone to do Game of Thrones. And by then, I had gotten very into the books, um, which I which I got into just prior to when the, I think the year before the show came out. So I was writing about the show anyway for fun because I'd been written about the books for fun, and got into it that way. Um, so a lot of it is like like you know what I'm trying to say is that the amount of worthwhile TV accumulated. At the same time that like my sort of backlog of TV writing accumulated, and you put those two together, and there was a market that I could a demand that I yeah. could supply for publications. Um, the other thing was I think I probably burned out a little bit on yeah. comics, um, having written about them for so long. Uh, I did an interview with Frank Santoro um, for the Comics Journal, where we talked about the state oh, of comics criticism, that, yeah. right? And, oh, Frankie. Yeah, and uh, so Frank led me <laughs> led me down the garden path, as he is so wont to do, the Pied Piper of comics. No, it wasn't Frank's fault at all. Um, it was my fault, probably, for not speaking clearly. Um, the point I was trying to make in the interview was that, unlike most other spheres of comics, um, superheroes, manga um, in particular... There just weren't a lot of people writing about alternative comics on a regular basis. And so I was trying to, A, wonder why that was, um, and B, talk about what the problems there were. And one of the problems, as I saw it, was that because there are a few people doing it, the idiosyncrasies of those of us who are doing it, like, they weigh too heavily on the overall body of critical work that's out there. You know, and in my own case, like, since I'm, like, a, a dark and depressive and obnoxious person, like, I value dark, depressive, and obnoxious work. Just and, so and, you're clear, Sean is wearing all black right now. I wear all black <laughs> all the time. Um, I would never do right. that. And then, you know, and so I then I rattled off a few other people, and we don't need to go into it, um, and said what I thought their idiosyncrasies were. 
and some of those people took them took that very poorly, um, which I understand. Uh, and then I also said a thing that was odd about alternative communist criticism was that there are basically uh, there were at the time very 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 few women writing about it, which was really weird because a lot of there were tons of women critics and are about superheroes and manga web comics. There are tons of women buying alternative comics. There are tons of women making alternative comics. I think, you know, for people younger than me, the 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 vast majority of really talented cartoonists are women. Um, and I thought that at the time. And so I was like, you know, other than Sarah Horrocks, and, uh, who's I, at the time I thought of mostly as an artist, and Zainab Akhtar, like, you know, like, where are the women? And that... You know, I, I'm sure I could have worded it better, but in a lot of circles that was interpreted as sort of the opposite of what I meant, yeah. that I was kind of being dismissive towards the women that I was citing or not paying attention. Now, the thing that was frustrating was people would cite me like, well, what about Bridget Alverson? And it's like, oh, Bridget Alverson, who I worked with every day for three years on Robot 6, who writes about manga? Yeah, I'm aware of her work. She's great. But that's not what I was talking about, yeah. you know. Or Jill Pentazzi, who writes about superhero comics. You know, I know we're these people. We're not talking about manga. We're not talking about superhero comics. Right. We're talking about people that are right. a Fort Thunder comic. And, and Peggy Burns um, was, I think, one of the few people who responded in a way that was on point. And she just rattled off a long list of names of women critics. Uh, but none of them are working for traditional comics outlets. None of them were blogging. None of them were at the journal or... You like know, Nicole Rudick. Nicole Rudick at the time, I, I was like, where'd Nicole Rudick go? And it's like, oh, she's editing the Paris Review, moron. And I was like, oh, shit. Um, but yeah, Nicole Rudick, for example. But people from The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, like a lot of them were for papers from other countries that I hadn't just been as familiar with. Yeah. Um, you know, because the comics coverage in the States, um, you know, the best known stuff, like say at the Times, I think is kind of woeful. And, 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 or was at the time and, and wasn't really focused on alternative comics anyway. Um, but that was really on point, Peggy's point, was that, like, yeah. there are plenty of women writing about it. They're just not doing it in this sphere. And that, that was what I was trying to get at with the interview, was, like, something that we're doing as the the alternative comics community in comics... The institutionalization. Yes, um, has, has made this unappealing, uh, you know, for women even in ways that even superhero comics aren't. You know, yeah. which is, I think, the opposite of what people might have thought. A lot of that's changed now, fortunately. But um, the that experience, uh, it was so sour um, that I kind of just drifted away. Because I take things with comics way more personally than I do with television. Because yeah. comics, I feel like, I feel in my blood in a way that I don't with TV. Because TV is huge. No one's writing a review. I mean, maybe if you write for the New Yorker. You're not, you're not going to a convention and talking to one of the head of, yes. of you know, whatever, AMC. But meanwhile, Eric Reynolds is just down the hall from right. us. Right, yeah, I'm not going to go bump. Like, I'm right about TV. You don't go to some TV convention where you get drunk with David Chase. Like, it just yeah. doesn't work that way. And you have no expectation that they're going to read your work or give a shit, yeah. you know. Um, and so you, you don't feel like you're shitting where you eat. Yeah. And so the fact that a lot of people in comics said, hey, Sean, you just took a shit where you eat. I was like, ugh, I'm, I didn't really want to have to deal with that anymore. Um, so now, generally, when I write about comics, I came back to the journal for a while and just fairly quietly for like four or five months wrote for them on a regular basis. 
But now, for the most part, when I write about comics, it's for more mainstream publications, you know, where I don't feel... And you were very specific in what you were choosing to write for by that point. Um, someone told me that you're not just taking, like, general stuff, like you had specific works you wanted to cover, specific artists you wanted to cover. For the journal, you mean? Yeah, when later I, on. Well, I did, yeah, I did, um, I did an interview series, but no, that was actually before that, I think. I had been doing an interview series just about sort of up-and-coming yeah. cartoonists called Say Hello, where I talked to, I'll try and think of everyone, Elle Nichols, um, Julia Gaffer, uh, Aiden Koch, Heather Benjamin, um, no, f- I think no Freebird, uh, Simon Hanselman, but then that wound up being like a, obviously a, a huge deal that we turned into a feature because I was like, this is yeah. this, you know, cause I think it's when he came out as, uh, you know, as a cross dresser, which is yeah. what he calls himself. And so, um, we, th- we felt that that sort of merited like yeah. a sort of bigger treatment. Um, that one, yeah. that, as a as a peer, I were then like, oh man, why didn't I get into that? Because I interviewed Simon like six months before that, mm-hmm. and we had a fun interview. But I'm like, fuck, just like I could have done a better job. Well, I read that, and I'm like, Sean, yeah, kudos. You, that's something I should have done. It's easier to ask awkward questions over email than it is like you yeah. know talking to someone in real time yeah. for sure. Um, so I don't take any credit for that. And he was also just ready to talk about it. Yeah, you know. Um, I loosened them up for you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, well, nowadays when I write about comics for more mainstream stuff, there generally tends to be some sort of topical or sort of wider hook, you know. So like, I interviewed Phoebe Gleckner for the AV Club when the Diary movie came out. Yeah. I interviewed Alison Bechtel for Rolling Stone when the Fun Home Broadway play came out. Um, you know, I interviewed, I did a whole feature on Mike Mignola and the Hellboy and BPRD stuff, but that's because it's Hellboy. Yeah. That was for Grantland, and they're like, everyone knows that, so that's fine. Yeah. There are rare, and then there are exceptions. There are exceptions. Like, I did a big uh, interview with Dan Klaus about patience, because he's Dan Klaus and he's famous. That, you know, just a very well-known cartoonist. There's no hook beyond that. Um, and I did one, a similar one with Dame Darcy, and that was for the New York Observer, which is the paper that's owned by Trump's son-in-law. The editor-in-chief, um, Ken Carson, uh, is an interesting guy. He ghost-wrote Giuliani's biography, or autobiography, but he was also like a punk kid in Chicago growing up and was super into comics, so he knows a lot of comics people from way back, and um, he has like Dan Klaus originals, and, and so I pitched Dame Darcy, and my editor pitched it to him knowing he's like kind of their comics person. He's like, oh, I know, Darcy, yeah, sure, that sounds great. So, that's so weird. It's very weird. It's a weird, weird world. And that was the same place that had that horrible crumb interview, right? Yes, it was. It was. That was. Ooh, boy. Ooh, boy. Yeah. That was crazy. And then that guy lost his mind and started like taking swings at everybody, including yeah. crumb. I don't know how they hooked up with that dude. You know, my involvement with The Observer is fairly minimal. You know, I write about TV for them mostly yeah. and comics occasionally. Um, so, uh, mm. Now, the term peak TV, you use it a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you hate the term? I'm not really nuts about it. You know, peak TV was coined by John Landgraf, who's the, the head of TV at uh, FX, and 
um, which has been a very successful network in this sort of new golden age era. And because he talks so candidly and directly to TV critics at the TCA, the Television Critics Association, they have like a big kind of, it's almost like a con, but it's, you know, press only. Yeah. And, and, and pros only. Um, his pronouncements tend to get taken very, very seriously. And, you know, Peak TV just basically refers to there's a fucking shitload of television, scripted television. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds, like 400 or 500 scripted shows, um, which is completely unprecedented. And I don't think it makes as much of a difference as people think. It's harder to get eyeballs on any one show. I guess that's true. But it's also more likely that shows without a lot of eyeballs on them will sneak by mm-hmm. and, and get a decent run. Like um, Halt and Catch Fire, which I did a big feature on for Esquire this this summer. Um, I gotta say, I didn't watch the show for a long time. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, this is the last thing I want to watch sure. the show on because... I grew up in the 80s, and my dad had a Commodore 64. Right. You know, I had no interest in, like, you kept going on about it and kept going on about it, like, okay, so right before the third season started, I watched the first two. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right. But see, that you know, I interviewed all the cast members, and we talked about Peak TV because, you know, they wish more people watched it. Um, but uh, the actor and comedian uh, Toby Huss was like, you know, five years ago, if this was on a network or if this was on HBO, we wouldn't be doing it anymore. No. We would have gotten maybe a season if we were lucky. You know, on a network, we wouldn't have even gotten a full season. Yeah. Um, instead, they're getting four seasons. They get to end the show on their own terms, um, you know, knowing it's the ending. They don't get canceled. And uh, so I think Peak TV has been, you know, has done more good than harm, I would say. You know, Hannibal is another case of a show that you know, it's just a miracle that it was even on the air because it was so disgusting. Um, like my, it was, my girlfriend couldn't watch it. It was hell. Ra- it was Hellraiser two levels of grotesque. But it was on the fucking Peacock network. It was on NBC. Yeah. And, and they got three seasons out of it. It would have been nice if it lasted it's longer. But Scott Thompson in a horror thing. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. And all. I mean, it's fucking zany to think about. Um, you know, and there there are drawbacks. You know, I think. Uh, but but in general. The stuff that worked and made TV great in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, the sort of heyday of the Holy Trinity, the Sopranos, the Wire, and Deadwood, um, you know, uh, it's still good. What what made good TV then still makes good TV now. There's just more of it. The interesting thing about that kind of, that Trinity, as you said, um, is Sopranos got to end... Of course, because yeah. he could have done Sopranos forever, mm-hmm. and HBO would have been happy. The Wire didn't do super successful, but it was a long-term investment yeah. because you have your residuals, and when you have something like that, and that's why something Halt and Catch Fire probably is able to finish because you can have that long-term investment as of being a product. Right. Uh, but Deadwood got the opposite. Yeah. Where it's like this amazing masterpiece. Like I know Boardwalk Empire is like your pinnacle, right? It's not, I mean, I like Boardwalk Empire a lot. I think Deadwood is, is better. I mean, yeah. I think Deadwood is better than it's, anything. But Yeah, for me, it's like Deadwood is, is like the best you could get. And mm-hmm. at that point when it was on, it was just like, how the hell is like this like weird, crazy hotel owner is doing these long soliloquies? Right. And it's just like, how is this a show? Right. And it's, yeah. 
Yeah, that, Deadwood is kind of the one that got away, and it's really unfortunate. Although the more you read about David Milch and his like working methods, oh, like it's amazing <laughs> anyone works with him at all. You know, he just shows up on set and writes the dialogue. Like I remember hearing about it because I I didn't see it, but I when I was working on a show that he ran, um, people would tell me like you know he'd show up and he just like he'd call interns around to transcribe. He'd sit on the floor with his computer, and so other people could pick up what he was saying, and he would just write that morning, and and like off the, off the cuff, and then give it to the actors, and they had to learn it. And then like, you know, Deadwood, they were reshooting entire episodes because he didn't like them. Like it was insane. So I interviewed uh, Ted Mann. He yeah. was one of the main writers on that, and he was in Vancouver. He's done comics in the seventies. And I asked about that because I think it was a Rolling Stone article about Deadwood back in the day that like really went over some of that stuff mm-hmm. we talked about. And we tried to ask him, and he's like, "I read that. That was fucking stupid. It was just like <laughs> he's just like, I don't play the Milton shit." <laughs> That's probably what you need, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, like an old friend who because he worked on a bunch of shows with mm-hmm. Milton, and right. he worked on John from Cincinnati too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just like will not play the the hero game. Yeah. To cultivate that sort of cult of personality yeah. that a lot of showrunners do. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, so that's yeah, that's my that's my take on PTV. The, 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 it just means there's more of it. Yeah. Now bringing it back to comics mm-hmm. is um, you've done some writing recently. You've done some comics with Julie Graffer, mm-hmm. Um and he got stuff online with Dan White. Who else? Were some of the folks he does. Uh, Johnny, Johnny Negron. Um, uh, Andrew White, uh, Matt Rhoda, Matt Weagle, um, and that thing with Matt Weagle—that's still—that's like, that's like done, isn't it? Or we—I mean, we we talk every once in a while about bringing it back. This is Destructor, which was sort of like my sci-fi action adventure kind of. You know, it was very very mid to late zeros kind of tone to it. You know, <laughs> that kind of the post, right? Right. You know, I guess everything that kind of mentality kind of filtered now into animation, you know, yeah. but, um, you know, it was sort of like a hybrid sci-fi fantasy action thing drawn in a kind of, you know, more alternative style than typically that stuff had been done, although now it's very common. Um, yeah, but Matt, Matt just wound up feeling like he was too slow to keep up the rate of production, and, and he had a kid and had a new job and, you know, had to kind of put it aside, but I'd like to bring it back, because... That's, you know, it's one of those things where, like, I invented those characters when I was eight, you know, and have been, like, coming up with their stories in my head, like, literally ever since. So I'm only going to get one shot at something that expansive. Like, I feel like I'm just wasting mental resources not to keep making them. But, yeah, for the most part, beyond that, like, I've just done short stories here and there with different Colleen Frakes, um, you know. And then I've done, I've done a, mostly lately worked with Julia. Um, oh, Colin Panetta. You know, I can keep rattling people yeah. off, but... Um, a bunch of people. Yeah. Uh, and with Julia, you are doing the Mirror Mirror 2 anthology mm-hmm. for uh, 2D Cloud. Yeah, yeah. And that should be out in the in the spring. And I hope you have more to say about it than the I do. previous editor. I do. I'm very... <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had to. I'm sorry. We, no, we, you know, when... when uh, so, yeah, so the Mirror Mirror is 2D Cloud's sort of flagship house anthology. And the idea is they're going to have a dis- different... Um, guest editor or guest editors uh, with every issue. So the first issue was Blaze Lermy, and the second issue is uh, myself and Julia Gaffer. And you know, when we were pitched this by Rain Hogan, 
um, which was extremely flattering and gratifying um, and nice of him to let us work together also. Uh, so I remember that when we first started talking about it, we were, this was the, probably cab um, last year. And we went out to drinks and Blaze was there. And I was like, I wonder how much crossover, like overlap we're going to have between your volume and our volume. And he was like, none. Um, but in the end, Aiden Coke is in ours and not in his. But she perfectly conceivably could have been in his. Yeah. You know. Her first book was published. By him. By yeah. Yeah. His one book that he published. That right. He was publishing in print. Right. Um, so, yeah, but it's very, you know, it, it's... In a lot of ways, it'll be very different than Blaze's. Um, yeah. You know, ours will be, like, very, very black, just color-wise. And, like, you get Blaze's, and it's, like, white, and they have this kind of fold-out, airy cover, and, you know. Pink. It's very, yeah, it's very it's very loose. Um, and, you know, Julia and I, when we first got this idea, I think we went out to the best bar in our neighborhood, which is, like, this kind of... It has that It's that fake speakeasy, you know, where you go through, like, a bagel place, and then you open the phone booth door... And in the back, there's, like, people in fancy suits making cocktails and stuff. And um, So we got, like, the strongest, like, stouts that they had, which were pretty fucking strong. And we got really loaded. And we, and, we, and we made just sort of, like, a wish list of people, like, how about we get Clive Barker in our anthology? Al Columbia. Uh, Chloe Peen, who's a the fine artist that Julia loves a lot. Um, and we were able to get, like, almost everybody that we wanted, you know, and the, the sort of, the, the rubric that we gave people was very loose. Like we wanted to do things, um, like it was like a, the umbrella theme was, uh, horror, pornography, the Gothic and the abject. And I think the pitch was something like, we feel that diff- dark and difficult work, um, is a way to sort of push people toward empathy, mm-hmm. um, you know, as opposed to work that is sort of more comforting or more about showing you, like, here is a bad behavior and this is us, you, the reader, and me, the the artist, sort of communing about our mutual recognition that this is bad behavior, um, which is the thing that Julie and I have seen a lot um, on the web. We have this thing called Comics Democracy. It's comicsdemocracy.tumblr.com where we just reblog any comic on Tumblr that's gotten more than 10,000 notes. And you'll see a lot of that, like these sort of didactic, and they mean well. I don't really want to tear them apart, but for me, it doesn't really get you very far because it lets you off the hook. And like Julia and I both, certainly in Julia's work, um, value stuff that feels like more of an indictment of you both when you're making it and when you're reading it um so that was sort of our overall approach and i can rattle off the contributors if you want let's do that okay let's let's really like do the opposite of my all right experience so yes so um it's edited by uh, juliet and myself and it features new and unpublished work in alphabetical order um by lala albert clive barker heather benjamin apollo kako uh, Sean Christensen, Nicole Clavelu, Al Columbia, Dame Darcy, Noel Freibert, Renee French, Megan Garvey, uh, Julia Gaffer, um, adapting uh, an old French uh, sort of uh, 
what is it, symbolism or heraldry? It's like a medieval French text by an author named Claude Paradin. Um, Simon Hanselman, who's drawing a Megan Mogg strip that I wrote. Um, Aiden Koch, Laura Lannis, Celine Liu, uh, Uno Morales, Moo, Johnny Negron, Chloe Peen, Josh Simmons, Carol Swain, and Trungles. And there's an introduction by a writer who we really like named uh, Gretchen Felker Martin. Excited to um, hear Carol Swain in there. Yeah, me too. That was really important to us both. Um, I mean, there's a few things I could say here. One is that we, we really, I, I know that I'm proud of the age range in this book. I think our oldest contributor, Nicole Clavelou, um, who's a, a, an incredible French mm-hmm. uh, cartoonist and, uh, you know, erotic artist. Uh, she's 76, and I think our youngest contributor, Laura Lannis, just graduated college last year. Um, so she's, I think she's 23. Wow. Um, so that was that was important to us because we, I think both of us feel that there's a fetishization of youth yeah. in comics that really drives us both fucking nuts. You know, I mean, Julia's younger than I am, um, but she had a kid younger than I did. Her son is older than my daughter, and she resents... Um, I don't want to speak for her, but when... You know, the idea that you have to be, like, young and footloose and fancy-free to do anything worthwhile in comics, first of all, it's so fucking bogus. Like, in, a, in an industry where Joyce Farmer exists, the idea that you have to be young to make vital work yeah. is ridiculous. And and we just don't, she just doesn't like being sort of put out to pasture. And I've always hated it, even when I was young. Like, this idea, like, it's, what are the kids doing? Like, it's nice to know, but... It's not as... I mean, we have kids in this thing, but, like, the point is, like, yeah, we do. And we have people of all ages, you know. Kim Deitch is still making his yeah. amazing work, and he's in his late 70s. Right. I mean, you know, fucking... Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were middle-aged men when they, like, reinvented the superhero genre and saved North American comics. You know, like, it's it's just dumb. Yeah. Um, and one thing, really specific thing that bothered us both was... You know, Julia got me thinking about this, I think... Um, but just the, the women alternative cartoonists of the 80s and 90s have basically been completely erased from the narrative. Um, and it's, it's, it's unforgivable. And, and because run-of-the-mill sexists, whether they're like really out in front, up front about it or just sort of part of the, you know, the male-centric narrative of communist history, like, they just kind of ignore them as a matter of course. But then also... For younger people um, who are very interested in uh, women making comics and, and, and broadening the sphere of who makes and who reads comics and the, 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 tonal, the tonal range and the genre range and the subject matter, like there's a narrative that that all happened after basically 9-11. Manga, there was a manga boom. And all and of a sudden women are making web comics. And, right, like no one had ever done it before. And, and it's like, you know, tell it to Dame Darcy and Megan Kelso and Julie Doucet and Phoebe Gleckner and, and, and a, you know, and a bunch of people that we, you know, Mary Renee French Swain we have in here and Dame Darcy we have in here and Carol Swain we have in here. Um, because that work was important to me and it's been important to a lot of people, you know, women, but certainly not just women. And, uh, you know, so we wanted to include those people alongside younger people like Aiden and Laura um, you know, and Lala, who you know, who are coming up with, yeah. you know, this in this sort of new context, you know. Yeah, it's like you have your elder statesmen of comics, the Clouds and the Ware and the Hernandez, mm-hmm. 
uh, where's our Mary Fleeters? Right, exactly. That's and 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 you know, well, they're right there. You know, yeah. you just kind of have to make the effort to go beyond the, you know, the sort of accepted canon, and you know, and 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 fortunately, you know, I think that's getting easier. Like even just this year between. Um, you know, I guess, yeah, basically over the last year, year and a half, you have a new, much more widely available version of Diary of a Teenage Girl. You have the complete women's comics. You have uh, the Meat Cake Bible. Um, you know, The thing with the women's comics is that it's so financially inaccessible that's true. for me. And that's the challenge, like... That's true. But, I mean, that's, that's, that, that is true of a lot of things in comics. Yeah. You know, it would be nice maybe if you could break that down into, into more you know, artist-centric collection. And, and there is stuff but... that's coming out where you'll see um, artists where they'll do complete works of someone's stuff. There's some names that are escaping my head right now that I can say specifically were Fantagraphics collected all a woman's stuff and did a book from the underground. Yeah, I think they did They did Mary Fleener, didn't they? No. No, Mary, they published a Mary book uh, back in the 90s. Um, but it's like a snapshot, and she's done a bunch of stuff since then. But it's like it was in the nineties. Oh, okay. I thought it was more recent. I don't know. Um, she's working. I think she's working on something new. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, but like Dame Darcy is a great yeah. example. That just came out, and that's basically everything. Um, it's a big book. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, some of it also. A lot of things fall out of print. Like I don't know if you if you wanted to look at Artichoke Tales by Megan Kelso, which yeah. to me is a really important book. Um, I don't know if you could find it now. I, it may or may not be in print. No, um, they reprinted Black Queen of the Black. Yeah, recently. well, because that was that was originally published by Highwater. Yeah. Um, Megan is actually really important to me as part of my personal biography because the first time I went to San Diego in 2001, Highwater Books had a table there, which tells you how different San yeah. Diego was just 15 years ago. And she was working the table... And I was like, hi, I like, um, you know, I, th- I don't know if I had, I don't know if non number five was even out by then, but I like, I pointed to uh, The Last Only Saturday, which is Jordan's book, Jordan Crane's book, and I like Caven, I think, the Brian Ralph book that they had out. What else would I like? And she just handed me a bunch of stuff, you know, and I was like, you like this, and you like this, and you like this, and I did, you know, and that was, you know, to, to, to dive in where Tom Devlin was curating shit, like, that you're in pretty good shape, you know? And she really was my my sort of diving guide through that. So she's very important to me personally. Um, but anyway, I guess back to the, the anthology. Back to Mirror Mirror. Um, you know, so it's we have everyone's contributions now. The, there are a few that got away, which I would love to talk about. Um, Helen Joe was supposed to be in it, and, uh, but had, like, you know, through, through no real fault of her own, was unable to do it. Um, so that's too bad. Uh, especially, it, I'm it, sorry, go ahead. It's tough getting the animators. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I'm trying to, I had written down, actually, the people who got away. Uh, here it is. Um, but we did pretty well. I mean, K.L. Ricks was another person that we asked, um, who's younger, but she was too busy. Um, Matt Brinkman was too busy. Um, and it's Matt Brinkman. Yeah. Um, which was too bad. And then there were a couple, like, we were really shooting the moon in a lot of these cases. Um, so we asked, or we tried to ask Stephen Gamble, who did the art for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. 
those children's books. Um, and we, we worked really hard at that. We contacted his publisher, um, Rain Hogan, the publisher of 2D Cloud, like happens to live um, in his town. So I think he actually went to his house and like left a package of like 2D Cloud books and like, you know, yeah. and a note. And we call this his voice, like voicemail and just, you know, I knew this from, I tried to interview him a few years ago for a magazine and he just doesn't do interviews. So I think he's just, yeah. just wasn't interested, which is too bad. And we pursued um, Alexandra Walaszewska, who's a Polish artist who does like really macabre, um, sort of surreal horror kind of stuff. Um, but you'll see, she has a Tumblr and you'll see it online a lot, but we weren't really able to, that might have been a language issue, I'm not sure, but we weren't really weren't able to like get in touch with her either. Um, so there were a few that got away, but I mean, we got fucking Clive Barker, you know, we got, we got Al Columbia and then we actually got pages from Al Columbia. So good for us. He was dutifully working. Yeah. 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 Um, and he, he he did some really extraordinary stuff for us, and but the, you know a lot of the, a lot of the things I'm most excited for people to see um, are not necessarily like the marquee names because uh, like Laura Lannis um, was I think the last one that we got, and we got an email, and Julie and I were sitting in separate rooms in our apartment, and we both read it, and like at the same time, like I was getting up to go tell Julia, like holy shit. Julia, like, ran into the room, and she was just like, holy shit, you know, and that's exciting. Yeah. Um, and it, it's exciting to see some of these sort of more up-and-coming people alongside, like, these big, big names and these more established names. And then also, one of the things that was most important to me was just getting Clive Barker's drawing in a context alongside other stuff that I feel is more spiritually similar to it yeah. than, you know, because when, when Clive... He and I go back a long time and are friendly. And his involvement in comics has been fairly mainstream. You know, he had an imprint with Marvel in the nineties, right? Um, you know, yeah. And he's a, he's a big Jack Kirby fan, and you know, you can see that in his paintings, actually. I think, and um, but his artwork, I, I think, operates more like if you're going to look at it in terms of comics, it doesn't look mainstream. It looks more like the shit. So I wanted to put it in a book with this shit so that people would think about it in a new way, you yeah. know, I guess. Interesting. I go on a lot about these things, but I've thought about it a lot for like months and months, so I hope I didn't bore people. No, I'm excited to see what you guys come up with because there's a lot of people that are like... Yeah, yeah, and, I, and our hope is that, like, if you like any of these people... You'll like this. Like we, we, we just we just wanted to make a book that kind of spoke to us and our interests, and because I think there's a space for responding to the way the world is right now with art that is dark and not like it's not a form of self care to read. You know, like that has its place and is important, but I, I, you know. Just, just the goth in us, like, just wants stuff to kind of reflect the. That that is reassuring to me in a way, like the hopelessness of that stuff, like to feel it echoed and feel that other people feel it. Um, it's, it's, it helps to confront that. 
We're definitely going through a 30-year period. Yeah. It's, it's a lot like the 80s, early 80s right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That aesthetic is coming through. I mean, yesterday I saw you wearing a Killing Joke t-shirt. Yeah. Well, one of the big influences on us when we were first planning this, um, there's a music critic named Chris Ott, who I'm friendly with. A lot of people are not friendly with him, to put it mildly, because he's kind of a... He's an, he's not an infant. He's older than I am. He's an adult terrible, and you know, he he writes a lot of screeds about what's wrong with music and stuff, or music criticism in particular. But he's also just a really crackerjack critic and historian. And he did a piece on Goth, where he the point he was trying to make was a lot of the people involved in early Goth, especially like Susie Sue, were there at punk from day one. You know, as involved in punk as John Lydon. Um, and they saw what they had hoped was going to be a positive movement kind of be, come in A, like a uniform that people could wear and very conformist, and B, like associated with aggression and macho speed and slam dancing and, and spitting on people and, and getting in fights and, and kind of falling apart and being commodified on one end and, and just being meaningless on another. And Goth was their attempt to redig the underground and access those emotions about this failure of this movement, um, in a th- in a way in a thinking way, you know. So like, you know, so for people who, who couldn't get into oi, you know, or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, where do those kids yeah. go? Well, that's where they went, and like that's kind of our approach too. I think. Yeah. We could go on more about music, probably, but yes, I'll save that for another day. <laughs> um, I have some very particular viewpoints in that way. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a, an industrial kid. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Me too, man. Um, we'll be talking about that tomorrow night at uh, the party that you and Julia yeah. have uh, curated. And I'm curious to see the music. Yeah, it should be pretty good. It should be pretty good. I hope. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll make notes. All right. I'll live tweet it. I don't know that it'll re- I don't know that it'll, it'll be worthy of your exacting standards though. I feel like you'll out goth both of us. Oh, I, I was asking Julia, do you guys have any fad gadget? <laughs> like, Julia is a post rock person though yeah, by nature, so. It's 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 been that's that's our equivalent of like you know being like Jewish and Catholic you know it's like she's post rock and I'm industrial. So it's <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Sean, and reminder, folks. Uh, in early spring uh, next year, we'll be seeing Mirror Mirror too. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, and I'll have a list to Sean's blog for plenty of writing. <laughs>